0: This is the epilogue audio experience. Initially, I used to hate that kind of content. I used to be like, hey, why are you bringing so much of demeaning to something which is a very pious process, you know, of creating content. Hmm. But then I realized that uh, it's not entertainment value. It's not any
1: other emotion, but the relatability which is at work, you know. My guest today, Ritam Bhatnagar, is the founder and festival director of India Film Project, which ballooned into Asia's largest content festival. A cultural melting pot of filmmakers, musicians, actors, screenwriters, YouTubers, stand-up comedians and all things creative. A journey that started in 2011 has been nothing short of a rollercoaster ride. Such a pleasure to have you, Ritam. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Hadik. And
0: more than that, I think I'm glad that you could actually introduce IFP in the shortest possible manner I've ever seen anyone do that.
1: Well, thank you. Glad I could do that. Ritam, I want to jump into a bunch of things. And first off, I want to start off with congratulating you on what a phenomenal property that you've been able to create over a decade-long period. Most of the festivals do not survive the 3 or four-year mark. Uh, you've been able to create something that's so sustainable. I'm to start back at, at a point in time where this idea was just a thought. And how did that sort of come about? In short, if you could tell that.
0: Okay. So, uh, Hardika, if I have to be very honest, I never thought of making this a property. You know, so the initial thoughts were that I saw a lot of uh, creators around me uh, randomly trying to achieve, randomly trying to create something. Uh, to collaborate, but never finding a single place where they could actually come together and do something together, you know, create something meaningful together. Uh, and also a problem that I found a lot of uh, creators were not able able to find relevant kind of work and relevant kind of people around them. So that was, I think, the smallest germ of an idea that I thought uh, I understood films because I used to be a part of a film club and a film festival as an intern back then and i understood this domain of how audiences react to content what exactly is the kind of uh, content love that people have across and hence the first time i did ifp i just thought of doing it as a one-off thing like i never thought i would be actually doing it for the second time it's only the kind of love that we have got from this entire creative community the kind of uh, reinforcement that we have been giving ourselves saying that hey you not necessarily be become just a doctor or an engineer, but you can also become a creator and that too can become a profession for you, right? So I think all those things just came together for us to create IFP. Uh, Now looking back, of course, it looks uh, like a journey which was so random, so unplanned and multiple points. I think every alternate year we have done something which we never thought we would be doing. So that's what largely the begin to... Till now journey has been like so you mentioned about the club so was that the sunset boulevard film club yes it was the sunset boulevard film club and the good part was that uh, it was one of the only private film clubs of india and uh, as a student because i was still studying in my master's so one of the things that i used to do as a part of my hobby was uh, uh, think of collaborating with young startups so uh, i remember in the first year i was very desperately trying to become part of uh, mudra advertising because I wanted mm. to go into advertising and uh, that was my larger aim and I tried for two and a half months before our first summer internships uh, you know were supposed to begin. So I t- tried for good two two and a half months, gave multiple round of interviews and I knew that I am not going to make it because they just picked up three interns every year mm. and uh, to be in those top three with no experience, no relevant experience of advertising was not going to be a good thing. Uh, So incidentally, uh, because I was looking at something in the media space, there was another company that I had applied across, which is just a single person company. So Mm -hmm. I met a person, the person says, hey, I am planning a film festival, which is going to be the first private film festival of India. And uh, uh, incidentally, You know, while I was in the interview, he offered me and he said, Hey, why don't you become my first employee? Um, And uh, since your college is usually a morning thing, you know, post your college, why don't you join me as a full-time employee? And that's how the entire journey began.
1: So was Uh, that the Ahmedabad International Film Festival?
0: Yes, it was the Ahmedabad International Film Festival. Thank you so much for your research. Uh It just right now takes me down to this entire nostalgia of creating a film festival with a team of just three people. And then of course, ballooning towards the festival. But we were just three people trying to create something in a city like Ahmedabad which had no large cultural tastes back then in terms of films Uh, and we were trying to put across a festival together uh, and we thought uh, you know let's get just 5,000 people from the city excited to watch the kind of films that we love to watch and that's how it started across incidentally the same day I was offered this job I was also I, I in fact got a Uh, confirmation from mudra so i remember Hmm. that night on my terrace calling up my dad and i think that's the only career advice or even a career decision i have ever involved anyone else in (laughs) and i called up my dad and i was like uh, hey dad Uh, so i was trying for mudra i made it to mudra and mudra has got some really good clients because mudra was the back then it was the headquarter for their entire india operations okay and uh, i said on the other side i have this young guy who is probably just two three years elder to me studies in mica and uh, he has something to offer and i found him very passionate about things so i the way he was telling me the way he was selling me this entire idea of making a private film festival happen so i think that was so convincing and my dad said uh you know what, you will always get more opportunities to work with larger organizations, even after your MBA. But why don't you go out and try something with someone where, you know, probably after MBA, you might not want to take that risk once you go through this entire placement thing. So go out, try something different. Uh, you will just at the end, even if you don't have a great experience, it would be a great internship Memory that you would remember. And that's how I think this entire idea started. I went into this office a week later. I realized what fun work I was doing. Uh, <laughs> we put up the first festival uh, uh, and we had more than seven, 8,000 people coming in. So glad to see something that you conceptualize develop into something, uh, you know, which is executable, which happens in front of your eyes. For me, that was the number one realization. I think I think the first time I realized that what I planned could actually materialize into something real really? right uh, and then of course the journey with uh, sheila aditya continued into creating uh, uh, the first private film club called sunset boulevard so i saw people in sunset boulevard you know, calling me endlessly saying that, hey, ek ticket de do, You know, we were always full uh, in terms of, uh, we were always house full. And nice. for the kind of films we never thought people would watch in India. And this is 2009 I'm talking about. Mm. Way back, there was just one channel on television called NDTV Lumiere, which used to Uh, showcase uh, uh, world cinema content or even alternate content everything else was bollywood so india was bollywood hollywood was trying to penetrate people had not heard about any other kind of films except for hollywood and bollywood and we used to show iranian cinema we used to show french films used to show japanese films and i think that entire uh the love i saw in people the kind of craziness i saw for people a lot of creators in fact most of those were creators um who were trying to do Were trying to become independent filmmakers. And they used to be part of this film club. And I saw how unorganized they were, how much of chaos was there because of course, you know, media and this entire industry, especially filmmaking has been, or the creator industry has been largely very unorganized, not just in India across the world. So IFP started with that gem of a thought saying that, can I bring these people together and can I organize them? Can I probably do something which becomes a common ground for them to connect? So I think, uh, uh, so right from film festival to the film club to IFP happening.
1: So it's such a connecting thread, right? And I think it's interesting that you roped in your father who is, uh, I believe, uh, is an astrophysicist and, and a teacher and and belonging to that background um, and still having the perspective to go take a risk. You know, that's still uh, such a commendable perspective to have as a father back then. Uh, obviously, the sector that you were touching upon was not a very well-formed sector, primarily media and film and stuff like that. And yet um, you get the chance to then sort of jump into that bandwagon and actually experiment with something. And interestingly, that took off. Absolutely. I think for me, uh,
0: the good part was, in fact, a a lot of people I hear the story saying that, uh, especially a lot of my interns, I find out their parents are not willing for them to go into a media industry because they believe it's not a safe career option I because my father is an astrophysicist he has been like exposed to the world he has traveled more countries than I've ever met anyone traveling for research purposes lived there for months and months Uh, so one of the good things that happened was when I told him that I want to become a scientist or whenever I told him because I think my dream up till my MBA was that I wanted to become a scientist so I wanted to pursue something in electronics semiconductor embedded Hmm. systems so that was my larger idea of uh, my career largely or I wanted to do something in computers Uh, So whenever I used to tell him I wanted to become a scientist or even in something in that this domain, I remember his reaction would be always like, why not try something on your own? Why not uh, probably start something of your own? And I, as a kid, I used to be the shy most kid in my class, right? I remember studying in a same school for 14 years. Mm-hmm. and still not being able to talk to most of my classmates till 11th or 12th standard. So just imagine being in the same class for 12 years and never even heard their voice, like never <laughs> ever had a conversation. So I used to be that kind of a kid. So for me, uh, the thought that I could do something of my own, I think that thought, every time he used to bounce that thought on me, I used to bounce it back. I used to be like, I want to become a scientist, uh, probably have a very comfortable life, probably someone who's discovering something has a couple of patents on his name, and for me to this, uh, you know, for even for me today to believe that I took a decision of doing something of my own. I don't know how did I get those kind of guts. Like at this moment, if you ask me to do something of my own again, I don't think so. I have those kind of guts again to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what magic it is, what kind of, uh, uh, you know, reinforcement my father made me at that time. But I just think that uh, the moment I remember when I told him saying that I wanted to begin with my own company uh his first thought was fantastic what are you going to name it i don't think so i've had got even any kind of more power coming into my life than that
1: <laughs> <laughs> so was yes. that was that freeway films then
0: yeah, yeah. So it's Freeway is still the company. It's the parent company of India Film Project. So like mm-hmm. how India Film Project is the brand name, Freeway right. is the... So of course, we started with a very different motive. So India Film Project used to be the first thing we did uh, back then. But uh, there's a very interesting thing, which I don't think so I've ever shared across on any, any place till now. Since you have taken me so much into nostalgia, <laughs> uh, uh, and this comes out, this used to be a four-month-long pilot project that I did. And probably that was the starting point for me to to start something of my own mm-hmm. i don't know have you have you seen swades of course i hope a lot of people would have seen who are listening uh, so there's a there's this yetara votara song which comes mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and there's this touring cinema so people are gathering together in a village and watching a film together which is probably the ancient most way of people connecting of how civilization started, right? Mm-hmm. People in smaller villages used to gather together, have some kind of either bhavai or some kind of uh, street place, different kind of things to entertain them. And touring cinema became something huge during the 50s and 80s. So between 50s and 80s, a lot of our parents would have actually seen films, coming down to their small towns and cities they used to put up this entire tambu so the tent and the screen and the sound system and everything used to wrap up back in a truck and then this truck used to go to different villages every day so i wanted to somehow start this entire touring cinema because satellite technology was available so the films were instantly getting released so Mm. for example you just need a screening system you just need a sound system a small tent and a screen and uh, everything else your content is completely available due to ufo it's available on a satellite based system uh, so the film can be screened the same day it releases so that was the larger idea of uh, uh of you know putting it together and i thought a lot of brands in india wanted to penetrate rural because still mm-hmm. if you see the kind of marketing and branding that's available in rural is only limited to either radio of course mobile is trying to make that change happen True. but there's no other way to reach out to deep rural mm-hmm. assets jahan pe people are living in a smaller say groups of 500 to 1000 people right mm-hmm. uh, most of those people still don't have smartphone connectivity or if they have not everyone has there so i did this pilot so i got a uh, truck rented. I got this projector bought across. I got a sound system from whatever savings I had from my internships and earlier uh, ventures and uh, uh, screen and tent. And I went across to different uh, uh, villages first as a part of my research project. So I did this research for good uh, one month where I used to go to different villages, ask the people what should be different, what is the kind of content they want to watch? What should be different uh, monetary options? So will people pay for ticket? Will the serpent pay for everyone's ticket? Uh, should it be free? And then I should charge advertisers. And then mm. I also roped in Unilever as a part of it and did a small pilot with them. Uh, so I used to do that kind of a thing. And that's how I think this entire freeway name comes from there because uh, the idea was to spend the entire life on highways like on freeways, right, <laughs> where we used to go to different highways, different villages and show uh the films to them. Hmm. Uh, eventually, by the time I did my pilot, I realized that as uh, fun it sounds on paper, as fun it sounds, you know, in especially in 80s, it would have been a great thing. But to execute it on a scale is going to be very difficult because you have single truck and you can only do one show per evening because it can't work in the daytime right okay so i think that's where i took a decision that i couldn't pursue this because even if it was very successful so my pilot was very successful because every show i used to sell this ticket for 10 15 rupees for different films Mm -hmm. and if i i saw a village of 4000 people and say uh, good 3000 people coming down to watch a film. Nice. So every show we used to make somewhere around 20, 25, 30,000 rupees at an investment of less than 10,000 rupees, not even 10,000, right? So we thought as a business model, it was definitely scalable like uh, uh, to an extent saying that we could replicate it but that would come at a huge cost True. which means that you had to buy more trucks and more infrastructure and just to recover that basic cost uh, of investment that used Probably didn't make a lot of sense, and uh, that's where I I think uh, as an offshoot to that I said hey uh, monsoon hai
1: monsoon mai I can't go to villages to showcase this, and that's how India Film Project happened. So I'm so, curious to know, uh, this happened during which period? Was this during the MBA period or or your master's? Just course? just
0: just after my MBA. So this was just after my MBA. I thought uh, uh, I wanted to do something in this space. And uh, that's how I started rolling up uh, this entire touring talkies thing. So after my MBA, I was part of uh, also the part of Sunset Boulevard uh, for a good six months. Mm-hmm. Post that, I started putting all my energies in doing the pilot. And I think from Jan to May, I did this entire pilot in more than 80-85 villages took this truck along, you know, I, I lived a good village life because nice. uh, there was no, no option for me to come down to uh, any nearby town because I used to be such deep into rural areas of Gujarat that uh, uh, the only option was the sarpanches of those villages used to offer us the guest room.
1: So mm.
0: half the team used to use the guest room, half the team used to sleep in the truck itself. That's how we could manage <laughs> for uh, for good four months. And then so what's since this... this? Was yeah. this
1: under the Unilever, by the way, with with Unilever, the, the project that happened, was it under the same uh, sponsorship model? Uh, so this was a part, as
0: a part of their pilot sponsorship they were doing. So Unilever used to do something uh, very similar in Maharashtra, uh, which was, but that was uh, called Jatra, which was not a touring talkie. It was a huge Mela that used to happen and Unilever used to show films there. Okay. So they used to use wheel as a product uh, uh, and they used to show films uh, with advertising of wheel happening right so wheel was the product they were trying to pitch so i what we did was we did an offshoot experiment so we said hey i'm trying to do something in gujarat but this is not a fixed model this is a movable thing which means every week every day i'm actually going to a new village and that's where unilever came in and said hey we have been doing something like this in maharashtra and since you are doing a pilot we can probably try this with wheel and see what kind of responses we got uh, after this but uh, more than advertising of course advertising was a challenging thing. Because not many brands used to invest heavily in rural. So usually, if you see rural brands, don't have those kind of budgets that we mm-hmm. want. We the kind of money we would have expected them to keep the operations running, and uh, urban brands mostly didn't want to invest in rural markets. So Correct. we were in that very dilemma situation. I think uh, Geo came in and broke that entire uh, rural and uh, urban divide between content but before that there used to be this very strict divide between the advertisers so advertisers always had a very specific target that they wanted to reach out to
1: so touring talkies was was part of freeway is it when you were rolling this idea out
0: yes it was a part of freeway in fact that was the idea why i started freeway in first place and hence it's called freeway because that that is what i wanted to do Uh, largely with my life. I wanted to change the way in rural how people watch cinema and and the way entertainment would follow later on. I think uh, the first pilot and I think the good part was in the first four months we realized that hey, this is not our cup of tea. This Mm. needs someone with a lot of deep pockets to come and uh, invest because otherwise a single truck even getting up to 10 trucks is going to be a very costly thing and uh, especially if you understand the digital domain this is also 2009-10 I'm talking about 10-11 I'm talking about when the digital domain was suddenly opening up right so for us one of the larger things was uh, saying that hey if you are a young person and if you understand digital why not do something digital which requires zero investment versus a touring talkist which requires a lot of money So I I think we had that call to make as well. Uh, And honestly, India film project started as a germ because you can't go to villages in monsoon and show uh, movies, right? So typically Mm. from June, mid July to uh, October, there is no way that you can actually sustain this entire business model of touring talkies. So you need to have something to do during those four months. And that's where I said, Hey, I have seen so many creators being such or unorganized and, um, Probably I understand the festival space. I understand the content space. I understand uh, how we uh, creators uh, work across. <laughs> so probably why not create an opportunity for them to come together or, across a weekend and you know shoot uh, something together. so you I, also, I think,
1: but 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 you've also been around films, right? You've also been with the Gujarati cinema for some time, and you've been an executive producer with uh, Kavirite Jai, I believe yes 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 so uh i think that
0: the touring cinema and ifp first season all three of them were happening at the same timeline uh almost so i think ifp uh was being germinated as a thought when keveri tejesh was also being germinated as a thought and when touring talkies was also in its pilot so all of those things were happening in 2011 itself for me right so i think uh uh, with Kevrit Ejesh, it was a milestone in Gujarati cinema because ever since that film got released on 15th June 2012 the entire industry has changed and like how like it has just regained a lost glory for uh, in a very different way because before Kevrit Ejesh, no one thought that people could make a Gujarati film that could work in a multiplex and people would end up paying 200 300 500 rupees for watching a Gujarati film like that was not even the farthest thought for anyone. Nice. I think Tejesh did that because it was three, four youngsters coming together saying that, Hey, you know what, uh, out of four of us who were in the part of core team, three of us were not even Gujaratis. And we <laughs> said, but you know what I used to run a film festival. Na? I used to be a part hmm. of film festival. So I saw a lot of people from Gujarat appreciating SME cinema, people appreciating Bengali cinema, people appreciating Marathi cinema, and then always questioning, saying that, Hey, like why doesn't this happen in Gujarat? Uh, why don't we have these kind of films? So I think the thought started somewhere there uh, saying for me saying, saying that, you know, if ever... Someone is trying to make a good Gujarati film, I would want to be part of it. And luckily that's the same time when we met across uh with this entire corner thought saying that, hey, let's make a Gujarati film which looks like a Bollywood film, which gets leads in a theater and has the same ticket price like a typical Bollywood film. And uh we were in our all all four of us, me, Abhishek, Mikhail Anish, we were in our early 20s and if I say early 20s we were in like very early 20s 21 mm-hmm. 22 year olds mm-hmm, and for I remember convincing my neighbors uh, so they used to ask me what are you doing and I used to tell them about uh, Gujarati film. so they used to think that we were creating some rural film <laughs> typically that has ghagra Choli mm-hmm. and that was the larger conversation that they thought until the film got released I remember till the day film got released most people thought that there are four crazy kids who are trying to Make some kind of a change. They are trying to do something to Gujarati films. But they will end up losing. So that's okay. what larger thought was. Because people couldn't imagine a film like this. The problem was that people saw Bollywood films. But most people in Gujarat didn't see what had happened with Marathi cinema. Hmm. With uh, Shwas or with uh, Harish Chandrachi factory. So people didn't see that. So they didn't realize that regional film is level to So I think we came from that thought. And I remember from the first day... Kevritya Desh opened up and I was also distributing the film. Uh, so uh, I remember uh, the theater people calling me up and telling me saying that, yeah, the film is really good, but uh, the numbers are not very promising, like hardly mm-hmm. 30, 35% occupancy, but everyone who's coming out, uh, they're loving the film mm-hmm. to an extent that from the second week onwards, the film started on a spree of being house full. And for next nine weeks, I remember I couldn't manage a single ticket for my family. I remember the mayor of the city calling me up and saying, Hey, I need a ticket for six people. And I was unable Mm -hmm. to manage a ticket because there were no seats. Like that is the first time I saw the power of content of how crazy things can be. So you just put out a, and if you see Kevritayaj right now, it's not greatest content ever made. Mm -hmm. It's a decently, fairly good made Gujarati film. And the kind of response it got for nine weeks if you don't get a ticket for a film that has a lot to say in a
1: state that for never sure.
0: celebrated its own language for almost good number of years. For
1: sure. And I think I think that's that's a great compliment to the whole cinema because from what you're talking to what is the state of Gujarati content today, it's exploded like how? Exactly. But you talk exactly. about stand-up, you talk about movies, you talk about theater, it is exploding and people are not getting enough of it. They want more. Right, 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 and and you also were distributing movies as well in addition to Kevrita Jayesh. So yes, how did that happen?
0: So that happened completely out of no choice for people to get films distributed. Just imagine this this entire Gujarati film industry, which works on typical rural content, right? So almost eighty films being made each year, and all those eighty films are targeted at typical tier. Tier 9 rural audiences. Like <laughs> they don't even target small towns. They just okay. target the smallest of villages. Pe there are single screens. So films fairly made on a budget of 25-30 lakhs. And those films end up earning between 1-3 crore. So that's the uh, industry. Uh, typically the lead stars of the industry are also people who come from rural background. Hmm. Right Now suddenly think uh, if someone needs to get a film into a multiplex circuit. Uh, most of the decision making for the larger chains happens from Mumbai that means that either of these rural film car distributors, if they want to distribute a film which is looking like a Bollywood film into a multiplex they need to speak to the teams at PVR and Cinepolis which mm. are sitting out of Mumbai mm. those teams don't understand your language those teams don't understand a vision they have never seen a Gujarati film right so you need someone who can connect both of them. You need a person who says, uh, hey, you know what? I understand the distribution. Circuit, uh, uh, I understand the distribution game somewhat. I also am capable of enough of representing uh, a film in a good manner to people who are going to be decision makers if they are going to give us shows or not. Right. So in eventually, I remember for K.Virtia uh, till almost a month before the release, we kept on trying finding distributors. We met people who were so disappointing because they never even so we met people who saw trailers and told us hey this film nahi chalega Mm. right so we went to mumbai to meet another set of distributors who understood gujarati and those people said hey you know what gujarati films don't earn and plus you made something which is very experimental so i don't want to invest into it so eventually we were left with no choice but for me to come up and start distributing that film so it started with this initially connect making connections with the right kind of people and then we just had a month because we had already announced our release date so we had to work backwards saying that hey by the time of release can we achieve 100 screens i remember we started with 70 screens on the day of release and for me 70 seemed like a very fair number understanding that a month before it was zero so from zero to 70 we just took it off because we could get a lot of people in confidence now so? the thing that happened was that mm. uh, uh because there was no one else who was distributing so people know how to produce content in gujarati right so there was abcl which was producing uh some gujarati content there were a lot of people who jumped into in this earlier gujarati scene who knew how to make content but except for me no one was in the area of understanding how to distribute content so they had no choice So a lot of people started coming to me saying that, hey, can you help me with distributing uh, the films? So for almost next three years, I was the person who used to distribute uh, uh, every Gujarati film that used to come across. And then I reached a point where I realized that, hey, you know what? I don't want to end up becoming a distributor because that takes a lot of time. And uh, for me, the priority had by then changed to IFP full time. So I said, hey, there are too many things on the plate. And one thing that I definitely want don't want on my plate is being a distributor. Uh, and, uh, I think, you know, there's too much gamble. Sometimes the film doesn't work. You lose all the money. Sometimes True. you make up to make a lot of money. So I thought that was not the kind of business I wanted
1: to be in. But, but curious to know, you know, generally how does a distribution model work, whether that's a Bollywood uh, cinema or Gujarati or Marathi, like what's the general distribution model? Are there percentages? Uh, how do you go about doing these things?
0: Okay, so this answer is going to take at least thirty minutes for you for me to explain. So we'll it to keep you. <laughs> it to a two-three minute answer then. <laughs> okay. So uh, largely till eighties, uh, the larger distribution used to happen in terms of uh, minimum guarantee, which meant that uh, if I like your film uh, and I am a distributor, I'll pay you an X amount to take all the rights, theatrical rights for the film, right? And that is what. Uh, uh, how mg used to work mm. so typically a distributor for example if a film was made for 100 rupees the distributor used to buy it for 120 rupees which means the producer makes a profit of 20 and then uh, whatever the distributor earns plus or minus everything is on distributor so the entire mm. risk is on the distributor which was great in terms of uh uh uh, you know earlier models because single screens used to do a lot of cheating so producer never wanted to be the person who is going to every single screen and checking out if their ticket model mm. you know ticketing is done right etc mm. with multiplexes kicking in what happened was the entire ticketing went from traditional handwritten ticketing to a digital ticketing right which meant that a producer in spite of sitting in whatever city could get a real-time idea of how many tickets were being sold And hence, a lot of producers said, hey, you know what? I lose a lot of money if if the film does well because I sell it for 120 and then the film earns 500. So why should I not be taking that risk? And hence, this distribution change that happened. Uh, where the entire system towards late 90s and when the multiplexes came in, moved from MG to a percentage model, where except for uh, producer, everyone else, right from multiplexes to right from distributors, everyone was completely working on a s- small percentage of the total revenue, right? Uh, and hence, you will see the change in kind of content because now producers had to be much better with the content because entire risk goes with them. Hmm. So if they made a bad film, they were the ones who are going to suffer the loss which is completely fair and if they made a great films uh, they were the one who are also going to bear the fruit so with uh, with mg uh, so minimum guarantee was an unfair model versus percentage which is actually much more realistic so the creator whatever their input is whatever the kind of content they create uh, they bear the fruits for that now interesting
1: so obviously this is a very
0: capital intensive business right films uh, with uh, the percentage model As a distributor, it's definitely not capital intensive. It's more contact and reference intensive kind of a business with, of course, multiplexes and producers. It is capital intensive because they are, of course, putting across money to make something happen. But distributor typically these days, a film distributor is as good as a biscuit distributor. You know, they only get a small percentage of total sales which are happening. So distributors are practically risk free. So, uh, you know, if things work, of course, they make more money. But if things don't work, they don't lose anything out of their pocket. Hmm. Okay.
1: Okay. So essentially now it's the content which is going to lead and the risk taking with the producer rather than the distributor. Absolutely. So Got it. distributor so has okay. nothing to do with content
0: now. They are more concerned with marketing and less concerned with the content.
1: But have you seen the kind of content that, you know, uh, the progression of content that definitely sells, which, you know, is a sure shot hit, like the standard recipe formula that comes out of Bollywood films. Um, You know, you know, things like that and versus compare it to maybe, uh, you know, new age filmmakers who want to experiment, but may not have like a mass audience. Um, but you do find a lot of value in the content that they're creating. Uh, right. This versus that, what's your thought on this? So there's a very
0: small analogy that I usually draw about it. In Early 2000 or late 90s, we had say 1000, 2000, 5000 people sitting in Mumbai and Hyderabad and Chennai creating content for 120 crore Indians, right? Hmm. So there was typically those guys and chopras, johars creating content for 120 crore people and the content that they created was typically based on their understanding of world, right? Or Hmm. whatever they wanted to show. So just imagine there is content, but there is no democracy. Right? So it's a kind of dictatorship saying that your entertainment depends on a thought of someone whom you don't even know across. And hence, the number one thing that was missing was relatability. So in that entire larger series, you used to see stories that they wanted to tell and not stories which were good representation of world around you. Mm. Versus the things opened up with internet coming in, with DSLR coming in, with people having more power to create content. Now, if you see... Uh, We have become a very relatable content democracy, which means Hmm. that almost 9 out of 10 things that you will see on internet, either it would be from your life or from someone's life, which is very close to you. right? Uh, And that happens because now you have 1 crore people creating content for 130 crore people. Mm. Right, and if you see that entire jump from few thousand people to now crores of people creating content, that tells you why this entire idea of uh, you know becoming an independent filmmaker or becoming a short filmmaker is so exciting, and why the stories are even more fun to watch because those stories are stories that we relate to, either characters or the situations we have been through. Uh, one of our friend has been through it, or uh, one of our friend actually looks like one of the characters there, mm. and I think that. Entire change that happened in terms of it was a paradigm shift, you know, Uh, and hence these people, specifically people with large pockets who are trying to make Bollywood films are right now so insecure about things because in spite of having money, they can't guarantee relatability in their content versus what a lot of people can do in a single YouTube video. Right. So I think that kind of differentiation is what we are right now living in.
1: You've touched upon like a very interesting point here, YouTube videos or TikTok videos, for that matter, the short form videos. Uh, It's, it's funny how the internet works, you know, like, like a video, which would have no meaning whatsoever, right? Uh, 15 minute, 20 minute piece of content, which or maybe 10 minute or even shorter than that would have no relevance, but it just clicks with people and runs into millions of views. That's where relatability comes into picture. That's Mm -hmm. where people
0: feel, Hey, is this story of my life or hey i wanted to live this life right i think that's where people feel hey the person who's right now performing looks like one of my friend or hey what they are doing right now happened in my life too i think that relatability is what largely is missing in our bollywood entertainment right you see heroes who are so much larger than life and we realize that hey This person is larger than life, but I haven't seen a person like this in my life. True. I haven't seen, I don't believe those characters. Those characters look very superficial versus I want to live a life or I want to see characters who are very close to how my daily life is. So I think you know, relatability is one emotion that people are able to catch on TikTok on YouTube. I remember, you know, when TikTok came in early and I used to see earlier, I was on TikTok. I used to see a lot of content uh, as there. So I used to be the person who had a fake profile, just checking out what people are making. <laughs> Initially, I used to hate that kind of content. I used to be like, hey, why are you bringing so much of demeaning to something which is a very pious process, you know, of creating content. Mm. But then I realized that, Uh, It's not entertainment value. It's not any other emotion, but the relatability which is at work. You know, the more relatable you are trying to be, probably I am not their audience, and hence I am not liking. But they have found their audience, and that audience is liking it. You know, uh, if I have to be very honest, there are a couple of biggest YouTubers in India Mm. uh, whose content I hate. I just feel, hey, what kind of cheap content is this? I follow a lot of international YouTubers, and I love their content. Mm. You know, they they put efforts in making each video and they put efforts every week like every week they have one video which is coming out which is like absolutely different level of research in india i hardly can count five such people who are creating that kind of content more people most people most youtubers in india with one million plus following are creating very average content but that's average for me because i am exposed to international uh, True. content right True. it's not That's average very for people who are uh, who are not exposed to that kind of content i watch netflix and hence i feel that these people are not probably up to the mark but 99 percent people in india don't watch netflix and for them that is the best kind of relatable content which has come in right so i think that differentiation is like huge uh and hence, if you say TikTok and YouTube content, uh, it doesn't work for us, but we are not the audiences for them.
1: Sure. I mean, it's a similar analogy, right? Like it's it's the content that you see on Netflix versus the content that is you see on Right. 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 Absolutely. Not that they do, both don't have their own audiences. Absolutely. They have
0: found their audiences and it's perfectly fine because you are in a business of entertaining people whom you entertain. Uh, you decide. You can't let people decide if they are getting entertained or not.
1: And I think it's more a creator driven process, right? I think if if the producer or the director or the content creator feels that this is what the niche that they feel that they're more accustomed to, or maybe, you know, you know, I also believe that it also gets down to they understand the audience that this works with them. So let's keep on sort of harping on that a little bit more till the time it's, it's also become like a numbers game as well. Now that if you have like a million plus or like crazy numbers of subscribers or followers, uh, it drives brands, it drives traffic, it drives more opportunities versus someone who has maybe relatively lesser number of followers, right. uh, lesser number of subscribers, but is producing really good, valuable content. So Absolutely. my thing is that, my thing is that Ritam, that it's more about discoverability, right? I think when you talk about someone who's outside, uh, some of the people that I really admire is someone like Ali Abdal, right? He, he produces right. some really good content. Um and a bunch of other creators, but there's also someone like, you know, Logan Paul and, and, you know, things like that when I may not be able to associate with those kinds of content, but they have some ridiculous number of views on every single video that they put out. Absolutely. Uh, the only thing is uh, the difference currently for
0: us. See what is happening is with the entire content economy on digital. Uh, there is just one set metric, which is largely number of views. Right. Uh, What has happened is the brands have not reached to a way where they also break down the quality of the kind of people who are following them. Right. For example, uh, you can go to India's top most YouTuber, but no brand will ever sell something which is more than two, three thousand rupees. Never do an association which is more than ten thousand rupees with them because they know that the audiences who are going to follow them are never going to buy a car looking at just the kind of influence right uh so they know that they might buy headphones they might buy clothes that's the kind of larger influence that these people can drive now if you go to a quality creator you will also find the kind of brands who come to them come there because they know that this person has an audience which can purchase which can take a decision which can uh, probably spend they have purchasing power with them which is very important so in spite of that person having say 100 people and uh, their popular youtuber having say 1 million people brands will someday realize that hey these 100 people are more valuable than those 1 million people and that's going to happen very soon so 2022 is going to be that year for realization for most people uh, largely and i think we will see that happening where brands will have this very particular divide between the kind of creators and between the kind of audiences and say hey I want intellectual audiences and this person creates content which is intellectual and hence I would go to them even if it's just 35,000 subscribers versus hey this person has got 5 million people but the kind of content he creates is not the audience which is going to ever buy me so I'll only go there for awareness driven things or probably for my cheaper set of products.
1: Interesting. Now, this is the salesman talking here and understanding and dissecting <laughs> TG, but I do want to talk about what an interesting point you've touched. And do you think that going niche on a particular kind of content area would be a relatively smarter choice or a good thing to do for a content creator rather than trying to be very massy in appeal? So I'm a person who
0: loves BMW over Maruti.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. So for me,
0: I think going niche is the way ahead. And uh, eventually any industry, any industry you pick up always starts with the masses, right? And eventually, they go to niches very fast, right? For example, if you pick up smartphone industry, when it started uh, with this entire smartphone, it was a very massy industry. You know, everyone wanted to buy everything. And now, if you will see, there are differentiations. There are one and a half lakh a smartphone. There's a one lakh smartphone. There's eighty thousand, sixty thousand, forty thousand, twenty thousand. And if you go on Amazon, the first thing you will see as a filter is on based of price so they'll say hey what price range are you looking for hmm. right and every smartphone so for example uh, OnePlus 9 considers iPhone as its competitor right so they know what segment they are operating in Hmm. and what are the kind of competitors they are bringing into system right i think uh, that is foremost of if if you if you see that's how largely every industry drives across you know so initially say bollywood films are like massy things and now you have your own subcategories uh that are coming in. now people have categories in terms of saying that hey independent film then people say independent film between independent and commercial Mm -hmm. kind of films and then you say new age films then you say hey uh, taboo breaking films so you have got those kind of films which have started coming in and people have found those very small niche audiences i have a cousin of mine who doesn't watch bollywood at all except for very specific films uh, which are neither independent but films that say ayushman does he says hey ayushman is a is a niche in itself and Mm. i watch his films because i think he is the only person who creates great content in bollywood rest otherwise i am very open with watching my international set of content that my friends keep on suggesting so i think that niche is going to even happen with youtube largely now so you will find people uh, subscribing to very small set of things that are very interesting to them because This that explosion of content has happened people have seen every kind of thing and now they'll make the choices of saying that hey there is so much to watch but hey i love airplane videos i love rubik cube solving videos i love people doing adventure things or i love those funny uh, videos that come across and i know that these are two categories that i love across and hence i'll keep watching only that kind of content more
1: interesting you know it also sort of circles back to the same point that uh, that why is it that a person who, let's say you mentioned about BMW and and, and the Maruti example, which is phenomenal, uh, going to someone who's very massy in content versus going very niche. But do you also believe that there is a point where to adopt a certain idea or a certain platform, it starts off with massy that dies down and then niche players sort of emerge in that space? Uh, So actually
0: the life cycle is very fun. Uh, It starts as a niche, it goes massy and then it again becomes niche. Right. So, okay. so uh, that's how usually any product life cycle or an industry life cycle is. Right. So it will always start with initial people who will get attracted to it, uh, which would be certain set of audiences which can either uh, who love the technology or who love the concept or people who have the uh, Capability to buy a particular thing. The early adopters maybe. Right. So, early adopters are the people who are usually very very niche audiences. Like for iPhone, early adopters were not people who used to be on any other smartphone. They knew who were their early adopters were. Right. They knew that, hey, iPhone people wanted status quo. And that is probably 10% of total audiences out of smartphone who care about status quo. Uh, The rest 90% audiences probably... Just care about cheap smartphone, uh, which has everything working into it. So they started with those 10%, started reaching out to masses, became a mass brand. And then hey, they said, hey, now you know what? I can always find my niche. So my activity-driven, fitness-driven people, hey, here's a smart watch for you. Hey, people who love entertainment capturing, here's a phone for you. Hey, people yeah. who love to work on multiple devices, uh, hey, here's an iPad for you. So they started dividing... Uh, audiences into different segmentations. So that's how it works for every brand. So it
1: starts with niche, goes massy, and then again finds niche into different segments. Right with a lot of brand managers these days, when you at least the ones that I've spoken to in with the Friend Circle, they talk a lot about micro influencers being the way forward rather than going for the mega influencers. And and they have like a more tighter-knit community, the smaller guys, more vetted, more invested, and and a smaller sector following, but but they do uh, drive influence with those certain set of people absolutely and i think um for me if uh, i
0: see a person with 1 million followers talking about something i know it's a paid thing but when i see a person with say 20k followers talking about something i believe that person because i say hey uh this person for sure is not an influencer even if he or she is an influencer uh probably they are they are putting such great content that they might have made a decision after trying something and not person who's going to just charge money and for doing something uh, that they're not aware about. So I think uh, micro influencers, micro creators, uh, the same way micro filmmakers are going to be the next 10 years for the creator economy.
1: Interesting. So did you also believe when you were reaching out for sponsors and I think your first sponsorship was in the year 2014? first sponsorship was in 2011
0: but I think the first larger deal that I closed was brand deal that I closed was in
1: 2013 uh with excess bank yes okay so how did that come about I mean you were not a very well established probably property but then you were still figuring out like you said you were in the survival mode uh trying to sort of get into the next year and and at one point in time you also mentioned that you were not even looking at it as a as a year on your property Absolutely. So the first year we did IFP, it was just a one-off thing. The second year, um, I remember being in
0: office and suddenly the landline rings in and my intern picks up uh, the call and someone on the other end is asking, hey, is Salka IFP ka on? And we are clueless. Why are people expecting this to happen again? Like we never thought of doing it again, right? Uh, very much into... Planning our own things, Kevrit Ajesh was about to release and all those things which were happening. So that were keeping me busy. And then uh, the moment I got this idea that people were expecting me to create uh, another set of edition, uh, I did it without thinking of making it a business. Because the first Mm. IP it was largely out of passion that I did across out of this entire idea of, you know, having free time, creating something. Uh, the second one, again, I was very clueless about how am I going to monetize this? And something that I had learned as a part of being earlier with the film festivals is that most festivals, like you rightly said, don't survive more than three years until either government adopts it or Ambani adopts it, right? So <laughs> there are just two ways how festivals you usually can grow to another level, uh, with ifp the second year again whatever we invested we because we had a ticketed model thankfully people were paying for participating so we could probably break even got again some small sponsorships uh second second year third year of uh, second year second year And the third year we did it, I said, hey, now, since I want to do it across every time, I can't depend on the ticketing model because ticketing model hardly pays for the events cost. What about my salaries around the year? What about my own income? How do I even keep paying my own bills? And hence, I need to get a secondary income into uh, the system. And that's where I started going to brands for sponsorships. Now, one thing I have been very clear because I did this entire film festival and I understood that working with local brands for a concept which locally for people to even understand is going to be difficult and hence working with local brand was not going to make any difference right Mm -hmm. most of the times brands would have come either just for a logo presence etc and uh, for me i really wanted to start with a brand which understood and believed in the concept because uh, thankfully till date ifp is a very complex thing to understand even for me to explain it to someone it takes more than 10 minutes and i think 10 minutes, I just can explain people the festival, the other activities that we do around a the year. There are a lot of things, uh, even for me to take it to a local brand was going to be a difficult thing. Forget the national brand. But I was very convinced to an extent that I wanted to start with a big brand. Uh, uh, at least someone who is in their own field in the top three. Uh, begin with them, uh, uh, get the kind of uh, industry referral saying that, hey, big brand sponsors. I right. Then probably drive it towards uh, having even larger brands. Uh, so for me, I think that's how Axis Bank landed in. Uh, they loved the concept, and I remember that meeting. Being inside that meeting, the person uh, I was meeting the CMO, and uh, I was not prepared for meeting the CMO at all. So I just went into that meeting because I was supposed to meet a brand manager, and the <laughs> brand manager says, "Hey, I hope you are prepared. I sit in the conference room. Our CMO will join us." And I was like, I remember terribly sh- shaking my legs because I didn't know. I was not even dressed to be in front of a uh, <laughs> CMO and the CMO comes in and asks me uh, saying that, Hey, Ritam, um, I loved what you are creating and I see there's tremendous potential because the world is going to be a video centric world and you created a video centric property. Tell me how did you start? And I told them about this touring talkies thing and all those, you know, film club thing. And the person said, Hey, you know what? I love what you're doing. I love you as a person. I think uh, you have, uh, you are trying to do something which is very different sounds very different and i as a brand would want to work with something which also comes out as very different and uh, hence we would want to collaborate with you and i remember it was probably the easiest and the best deal i would have closed in my life uh up till that moment because uh, you know someone uh sponsoring a festival not because of the intense concept of the festival but because uh they loved the idea that hey something like this has a potential to go big mm. uh, and uh, we should be the brand which should be supporting them and hence instead of just a single year deal they said hey here's a two-year deal in your kitty uh, so that next year also when you are putting up the IFP, you don't need to worry about uh, the festival at all you don't need to worry about the funds and finances you just go and put a great show and of course whatever small brand, brand integrations were going to happen they were going to happen but the, largely the idea was to for them to you know Hey, put up a great show, uh, make sure that this concept grows and everything else will come second. Got it. So I think that's, so that's how it that's, started. Yeah, that's,
1: that's a fantastic situation to be in, right? Because primarily when someone goes out uh, looking for a brand, it's generally difficult uh, to pitch an idea and then get converted. And from whatever you're telling uh, to have such an enthusiastic response. That's another level of confirmation of the idea that you've already been working on. I think for me, that was the first time I got a confirmation or a validation of an
0: idea saying that, hey, up till now, of course, the creators believed in me, which was a big thing. Uh, My team believed in me, but this is the first time that I'm getting an industry validation. Uh, And probably this is now I can take a decision that I want to grow sponsorship as a revenue model for the festival because I've seen festivals surviving solely on tickets and I've seen those festivals not surviving. So probably I think that reassurance saying that, hey, uh, I can build a private festival in India and brand might support me because they might like the concept. I think that is how it started it. So did uh, you
1: have any point of contact already before with the CMO or the brand manager? No. Were you like already no. aware?
0: No, 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 not at all. I think uh, completely found out people through LinkedIn, reached out to them through cold email. And uh, also I was trying to develop a good sales process for myself. So I think those were the initial try, trial and error kind of things, saying that, hey, can I, uh, the first thing I did in the first year was as stupid as calling their head office on the landline number given on the website. <laughs> right. And I think uh, thinking that if someone picks up the call, I'll tell them to connect nice. to the marketing department. Love the hustle. Think, Love the hustle. Right? I think uh, second year is when I realized that people don't usually transfer your calls so easily to the marketing department. So the second wise thing to should be to write them an email. And I think that's how I just wrote an email, uh, wrote an email to 15, 20 brands got a reply out of uh, five, six of them. One of them called me, I, I think three, four of them called me for the meeting. Access bank was the first meeting. And I just think uh, it was very natural for us. Uh, uh, as an integration back then uh with XS Bing. so it just happened like
1: like so did uh, you have like any slide deck any presentation ppt of sorts to show the hmm? yes of course a slide deck back then um, i still prefer
0: slide deck Oh, oh, I still have, I think one of the most beautifully designed slide deck that you would see in India is what IFP designs. I think for me, if someone asks me that tomorrow 50% sale pe hota? I say on the deck. So <laughs> I make sure that people watch my deck. I'm like, Hey, check this deck, which is attached this with, with the mail. And then again, when I'm closing an email, I say, Hey, please, I am, you know, once you go through the deck, let's get on a call. I make sure that people are like, so curious saying that, hey, why does in a 20 word mail, this person writes deck four times, because I want to make sure that they watch the tech. Interesting. <laughs> the so deck.
1: With, with, with the consecutive years when brands like Nestle, Unilever, you know, PNG came in on Diageo and OnePlus, was it a similar pitch or did it become easier convincing people or the challenges were similar or, or what were your learnings across this raising sponsorships? it definitely didn't become easier in fact it's much more difficult now to
0: raise sponsorship uh, practically for two larger reasons one uh, the kind the way the festival has evolved uh, the festival has become a costly thing so for example just giving you a, a, a simple comparison my 2011 festival the first festival it costed me less than the main gate of my 2019 festival <laughs> right so okay. that's the simple most analogy because uh Uh, You know, the venues, the marketing, so many things, the team, everything is a cost now. Uh, The first festival, the first three, four editions, we are just two, three people, two interns, two people running the show. And hence, you know, costs were very limited. Uh, And hence, most of the times, sponsorship never got stuck in terms of money. So if they liked the concept, they said, hey, I like the concept, I want to sponsor you. Because I can definitely afford you right. to a place where conversation now has come to a point saying that, hey, IFP, ke liye I need to plan my budgets at least a year in ahead or at least two quarters in ahead mm. because you guys are costly thing. And that level of media planning requires a lot of approvals. And hence, I don't think so I can afford IFP. Uh, the second larger thing with uh, uh, brands now is that uh, in the first two, three years, the integrations were very simple. So a brand used to come to me and say, hey, you are the first festival I'm sponsoring. I don't even know what sponsorships look like or probably brands who have done college festivals, right? Now, because brands are much more aware about how sponsorship works, uh, sponsorship is not simple. You can't just put a logo and get someone as a sponsor. There are more than 60, 70 deliverables and to align a brand, to align their agencies, to convince them uh, and to make sure that their agency likes it approves it their media agency approves it their creative agency approves it and then the brand team approves it and then finally the media team uh, uh, does negotiation and then you qualify for even getting a sponsorship so i think mm. the process is much more complicated so one is of course uh, with budget the problem that arises second is with the complexity of the project uh, of the festival now uh, and the complexity of deliverables are associated things become larger uh, than uh, what uh, ideally they should be also what has happened is in a in last couple of years brands have gone and also sponsored ips that they never had great experiences with so a lot of one-time festivals that came out of nowhere Brands said hey festivals festivals are the next big thing mm. let's put our money to on-ground activation Burned their fingers They bent their fingers. So for us to convince them saying that, hey, you know what? We are not a music festival. We are not a festival where people just come and party and headbang and go across. We are a festival where people come and create content. Like that's the highest level of engagement people can actually do with any brand or with any festival. So uh, this is what we are uh, this is what larger space is and we are very different in this space and in our capacity than any other festival which typically engages in only in terms of logo presence so for us to convince brand saying that hey you might have had a bad experience but ifp is not that bad experience uh that you would have burnt fingers with i think that convincing i went i still go through that phase i still in fact just last week i was telling a brand saying that hey this is what you would have done earlier but we are not that kind of a you know, we don't uh, do numbers or we don't look after just achieving some small throwaway KPIs. Like, but but yeah. here's
1: the thing, right? As you scale up, uh, this is what will matter, right? Numbers will is what matter at the end of the day. And this is what the brands are looking for. However, passionate, I think we as creators and entrepreneurs are, brands might not look at it that way, right? Absolutely. I think numbers are definitely some things, but uh, not the throwaway numbers, right?
0: For example, uh, metrics keep on changing now for a typical small festival or say festival, which is in a non-engagement domain where people come, drink, headbang and go away. For them, the larger numbers are in terms of how many say uh, footfalls came in, right? Now you can't compare a music festival with IFP and say, Hey, you know, we invested 100 rupees, got 100 footfalls in that particular music festival. Now I'm going to invest 100 rupees in IFP, but I'm only getting 30 footfalls. Uh, I need to make them explain saying that, hey, you know what? Those 30 people are much more capable, are going to engage almost 20 times more than a 100 rupee festival that you invested in those hundred people that you got across right so I think that level of differentiation to make brands understand the again niche thing right we come into a very niche festival IFP is not a massive festival no one can just wake up a particular day and say hey I want to be going to IFP you can't do that you need to be a creator to be able to do that you need to know how to create to participate in our challenges you need to understand this domain to be in the festival to understand every single word that's being spoken on the stage otherwise you can't just headbang be there and say hey in, and usually you can't be there otherwise uh, in larger cases Mm -hmm. so the audiences that come to us are also very evolved audiences Uh, have purchasing power understand things in much more detail uh, are able to influence uh, people around them are very edgy understand technology so we know what kind of audiences we built right now we still are in a niche domain uh, the conflict happens when brands think that events are supposed to be footfall driven things. Mm. So when a brand is saying, Hey, IFP gets say 70,000 people each year who participate and attend versus if I do a mall activity for 10 days, I will get again 70,000 people. They need to understand that. Hey, those 70,000 versus these 70,000. Right? The audience, the intent, uh, The context, everything is different. So I think that becomes a challenge for us to make them understand as to why they want to be or they should be investing that kind of money here uh, versus, uh, you know, so I think that's largely where sponsorship becomes a bottleneck uh, for us as we grow because more people coming in, uh, more uh, uh, expenses going up. Hence, you need more sponsorship and sponsors want more uh, metrics
1: of, you know, what we can't achieve. True, true. So as you've been through so many boardroom conversations, uh, Ritam, what are some quick top of the mind learnings you've learned about negotiations?
0: <laughs> negotiations. I think a lot of things that I've learned across negotiations, uh, the largest or uh, probably the most effective learning would be that when you're negotiating your age student matter. I think uh, I started working with brands, this entire access bank thing and everything. It started in 2013 when I was 23. Right. A 23 year old kid sitting in front of a CMO, you know, if I, I have a 23 year old kid kid sitting in front of me, I would negotiate and like, how, you know, I would have, I would be like, I would make them change their career choices. If I know (laughs) these kind of tricks, I would be like, what are you doing? Your life is math, etc. I can do, I can very easily mold them to another level just by negotiating in a very simplest manner, not even a complex negotiation. Uh, so I think uh, my learnings were that initially, of course, and I think I got fooled a lot of time in the initial years. I People took advantage of a young festival plus a young founder with no experience of sales. So people understood, hey, there is no backing. There is no one who's going to consult him or her. So why not probably just, you know, tell them to work on my terms and conditions. It's only, I think, when I grew up a bit had these kind of bad experiences i realized that you know what i won't let age matter in terms of negotiation i won't let people negotiate with me because uh, i am a young person and hence they think that hey this person iska kya expense hoga kya he expense hoga and you know let's just work with him uh, and make him work on our terms. No, dude, I have my cost. I need to meet those costs. And hence, I need to work with you because I want to create a win-win, not a win-lose. So I think I, for me, one of the learnings was that age shouldn't matter when you are inside a room. Never think that because you are young or because you are new to something, uh, people have an upper hand on you. Mm-hmm. You are providing something which is valuable. And hence, you are in that room. And hence, you have reached that level of that stage of conversation. And... You should not think that, hey, I'm new. So probably I have a lower hand in this entire deal. I think that's a classic mistake. Most founders, most newcomers, startup people make around me is that they give up too much too early to people uh, uh, because they think that that's how they set the foot into the business. Hmm. So I think that is one of the learning. My another learning would be that, uh, you know, negotiation largely it's a skill and it's uh it's a skill that should eventually become a habit for you so business negotiation is just one part of life but then as and when you grow up you realize that your negotiations happen all day all time with every kind of people right you i I'm negotiating with my wife for something. I'm negotiating with my employees for something. I'm negotiating True. with my office boy for something. There are negotiations which are happening with my uh, landlord. There are multiple things that are happening. And negotiation to see of it just as a business skill is a wrong thing to do. Right? We are always negotiating. And you can't improve your negotiations in business skill by not improving your external negotiations. Like, Interesting. You can't be uh, a lame person. A person in a normal life and suddenly when you are in a boardroom meeting you suddenly try your best foot forward and say hey i would be great at negotiation when i'm doing a deal but not when i am actually in my real life i think that's not how it works a lot of people think that hey negotiation only happens when i am trying to close a deal or grab a business no they happen all the time and that's the only way you can polish your skill you know you can't just every time wait for a meeting to do a negotiation Uh, and i think that's a classic mistake that people make with negotiation
1: mm-hmm
0: so i think for two things one your experience your age shouldn't matter when you're negotiating and i think the second thing is that uh, uh you need not be negotiating only when you are inside a room you uh, with a meeting or you're trying to get a uh you know sorry uh you need not be negotiating only when you're trying to get a deal done you should Got be it. like negotiating 24 cross 7 with whatever you have to offer i think it should become a habit and a mindset rather than just a skill. Uh, most of the times,
1: true. That's a very interesting point of looking at it, right? I think when you make it as a mindset, you approach every conversation from that perspective. But do you get calculative in that case? That oh, you know, uh, what's in it for me, right? What am I getting out of this deal? Even let's say if it's your wife or whether it's an employee, are you getting the upper hand? Are you getting the leverage in this conversation? See, uh, uh, leverage. I don't
0: know how many times, except for uh, non-business negotiations, how many times can you find out a leverage? Because most of the times you don't have a very perfect metric. You can't go to your wife and say, hey, this is what I want. This is what I am uh, going to settle for. You tell me what's the offer. You can't do that. You don't have a metric. So you don't know if you have been great or you have not been good with the negotiation, you don't know if it worked or didn't work for you. right? Uh, Of course. You have a subjective idea. There's no objectification of negotiation that's happening. While you are in a deal, you know that, hey, I pitched for 100 rupees. This person wants to do it for 80 rupees. And hence, you have metrics in front of you. You know that this is on the table. This is not on the table. And this is what the terms are going to look like. right? Hmm. And hence, business, negoci- ne- business negotiation takes a different seat altogether when we are talking about uh, negotiation where you need to be much more selfish. Because you are hmm. you you have a lot of things that are objectively calculated. So you know, hey, my cost of doing this is ninety rupees. So for there is no way that I can actually settle for eighty, right? Versus your personal negotiations that you have been doing around the day, uh, you know, convincing an employee to join, convincing an employee not to leave, all those kind of things. You don't have objective metrics, you know. So I think uh, your selfishness is only to an extent saying that hey this is my favorable outcome but i don't know if this happens in the middle i don't know if it's favorable for me or not you know what's favorable you know what's unfavorable but you Hmm. don't know what the middle ground looks like right got it interesting so what's next for ifp So two different things. Uh, A year and a half back, uh, almost two years back, we started evolving ourselves into an agency uh, and not a digital agency. We are trying to become an agency which creates IPs for brands. So we are trying to become... So we have this leverage of creating our own IP. We said, hey, 10 years, we ran an IP in a domain in India, which not a lot of people celebrated and got some of the best brands to be with us, generated almost close to two, two and a half lakh minutes of content with us. And uh, we are in a very sweet spot because content is the next big thing and brands are looking for more content so he said hey since we created our own ip why not we go and create an ip for you as a brand which you could utilize for if you know year on year basis so he started doing that since last two years now and i think that business or that division for us has evolved much bigger than ifp as a festival in terms of uh, revenue in terms of uh, uh projects and businesses that we get across so that's a very sweet spot that uh, we think we want to be in now so we want to become a brand that helps other brand create new brand uh, if i have to simply put it across and with the festival uh, which is still the core because that's where all the energies culminate and that's the energy that we love crazily Uh, the idea is to now take ifp international uh, which we have been exploring for last two years but i think 2020 we would have definitely have a uh, international edition of ifp happening somewhere in europe and north america but i think with covid we thought we didn't want to take those kind of larger steps right now uh, probably next 12 months to 18 months that's the plan uh, take ifp to different creator circles the way we have enabled so many creators in india uh, we thought how could we also do similar thing in markets japan creators are not very well organized so that's the second larger thought so now the planning, the entire festival team, of course, is working very hard to put this year's festival, but also planning to make sure that uh, in probably next three years, we have at least two other international editions which are happening, uh, which are very localized for audiences there. So, of course, we don't want to talk about Indian content there. So, talking about the content which they develop, uh, the lifestyle that they have, the problems, the solutions, which is completely a different ball game than what we have here in India.
1: Fantastic. I wish you the very best, Ritam. It's been such a pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much, Hardik. I think your research made it all
0: the more interesting for me because uh, honestly, I haven't uh, spoken to someone
1: who has done research typically from the formative years. Thank you. It's uh, great to hear your perspective on this. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode of Jamsters, please make sure you subscribe to Epilogue Media and all major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, among many others, for upcoming episodes. You know, I love listening from each one of you. So please make sure you share this podcast with your friends and family and your colleagues. And please make sure to drop a comment on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And also if you're listening on Epilog Media, they've recently launched a feature where you can comment on the particular episode too. Your support is my fuel. You can connect with me on Instagram at the rate Hardik or on LinkedIn too. Catch you on the other episode.